Welcome to today's podcast, Stopping Catastrophes, How Do We Tell Which Warnings to Heed? In Greek mythology, Cassandra foresaw calamities, but was cursed by the gods to be ignored. Modern-day Cassandras predicted the disasters of Katrina, Fukushima, the Great Recession, and the rise of ISIS, but like the mythological Cassandra, were ignored. How do we know which warnings are likely to be right? In Warnings, Finding Cassandra to Stop Catastrophes, authors R.P. Eddy and Richard A. Clark discover a method to separate the Cassandras from the chicken littles. They investigate the experts who today are warning of future disasters, but whose calls are not being heeded. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence interviews R.P. Eddy, a globally recognized national security and intelligence expert and CEO of Ergo, a leading intelligence and analysis firm on how we can find those prescient people before the next catastrophe strikes. David, I'll turn it over to you. RP, it's a great honor uh, and privilege, and congratulations on this new book. And you touch upon some very, very uh, important themes about uh, risk management, predictability, resiliency, and response. Let me begin by asking uh, you a basic question. What led you and Richard to write this book? David, thanks so much for having me on. The honor is really mine, and I'm excited to get to talk to, uh, I know Rain has a really extraordinary and distinguished group of clients, so anyone who's listening to this, I'm sure will uh, be someone that I, I hope, this is the kind of person I want to get the message out to, so thank you, and thanks again for having me on. Um, those who recall their 9-11 history remember that Richard Clark was the man who warned America that Al-Qaeda was a massive risk, and, and he was largely ignored. Uh, by the 43rd presidential administration, uh, uh, George W. Bush. So he felt, and, and I worked with him, we were counterterrorism um, uh, team together at the NSC. He was the senior director and I was a director working with him. And he felt at the end of that, and I think probably rightly, that he had a warning, as did others like John O'Neill and a number of people, that was ignored. And having felt that feeling and, and feeling it pretty, pretty aggressively, he realized there's other people historically who have had this warning, this, uh, they've been able to warn and have been ignored as well. So we sat down one day, we knew we wanted to write a book together, and, and um, we talked about different ideas, and he said, look, how about this idea of Cassandra's? So I had to quickly go look up Cassandra in my, my Wikipedia and learn that she was the Greek goddess who could foretell disasters and was ignored, cursed to be ignored. And we said, I wonder, A, are there other Cassandra's in history, and B, is it a random compilation of people or is there a lesson here? So we sat down and we, we began the process of let's write a book. And we started off by interviewing about 10 people who had predicted disasters. And we would keep looking at each other during the interviews going, this is amazing. They're saying the same things. They have so many similarities. Uh, we realized there's really something here other than just a history. There's a lesson. Well, that's so great. That's and we decided to do it. All right, and the book is um, important and timely for many reasons. Uh, no less, let me just remind our audience about some um, recent events. So um, experts right now are, including you and Richard, have foretold the escalating threats that are coming from cyber security, the geopolitical nature of these threats, and what it potentially may mean from a systemic uh, on a systemic level, uh, we're seeing some things play out right now in the Ukraine and Europe and around the world. Uh, we've gone through the financial crisis um, in the Nobel laureate uh, professor, Shore at uh, Yale, 
uh, accurately uh, foretold the internet bubble and also the uh, real estate bubble that led to the financial crisis. And we're also um, looking at the different messages that we were receiving, but perhaps overlooked or didn't take into appropriate account with respect to the threats to our electoral system and our democracy, uh, issues which are now playing out in the halls of Congress with hearings. So uh, as you sat down, you don't just write a book. Uh, you obviously, you and Richard, I know how to have a great relationship, but there was a lot of thought that probably evolved over time as you were writing the book. Maybe you can summarize some of the important lessons uh, for risk management uh, going forward. And as I define risk management, and as I know you define risk management, it's not just, uh, these are not just things that impact the public sector, but obviously things that are highly relevant for businesses and how they think about um, risk and how they manage, hedge, and begin to, we'll call it, adopt methodologies that provide resiliency. Hey, David, you just laid it out perfectly. That's exactly what we found, right? So, um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of surprise as we interviewed all these Cassandras that they had so much in common, and I'll talk about that in a second. But let me just, let me make a big, bold statement here. Um, it, it, you know, I worked in government intelligence and government analysis, and that's what my firm does, and that's a lot of what you've done historically. And you and I and, and a lot of people listening to this have clients coming to them, and maybe an internal client, and maybe a fire chief, and might be a president, saying, what's going to happen next in scenario X, Y, or Z? And you know the old hackneyed expression, the CIA loves it, they wear it out. We don't like to make predictions, particularly about the future. Right. And there's a reason people say that. And the answer is we're really garbage at making predictions. We're not good at it. And in fact, we're so bad at it. There's no study. There's no major. There's no Ph.D. in predictive analysis. It's not a thing people study because we kind of assume we're not good at it. It's not it's not improper to believe that. I think what Dick and I discovered and this is look, here's a huge bold claim for you, David. I think what we discovered is. In some instances, with some people, they can see the future. It's a crazy statement. This is Karnak the Magnificent, the guy on Johnny Carson, right? We actually think that there are people out there that have a set of characteristics that when they're warning you of something, you better listen twice. You better not throw them out of your office. And, um, and that in and of itself, that's the big message, right? And I'll tell you how to do it and what we think to do it. And let me be very clear. This is an initial book, an initial look. This is not a PhD level thesis. This is a study of about 10 Warners, 10 Cassandras. Uh, we think there's a lot more work to do here, but we think we're on to something here. So how do you do that? How, does, how do you separate the signal from the noise, the Cassandra from the chicken little, the person who's really correct in their warning versus the, the end person who comes and tells you the sky is going to fall, right? We all joke about Nouriel Rabini. He's a great economist with the great knock on Nouriel is he's predicted eight of the last two recessions. How do you tell the difference? Well, what we found studying these folks who were right and were ignored is they have a really overlapping set of commonalities. We call it the Cassandra coefficient. There's four major categories to look at. The warning itself, there's often the aspects of the warning itself that make us want to not listen to it. Let me give you one, outlandishness. David, I know you knew a lot about the Bernie Madoff fraud. And if you look at this new HBO series, I think it's called The Wizard of Money on Bernie Madoff, there's a great scene in there where Madoff's sons, who claim to have been innocent to the fraud, remember this is a $65 billion Ponzi scheme, the largest financial fraud in history. 
His son looks across from the FBI and says, I want to know how you didn't know this guy was a fraud. He was the chairman of the NASDAQ. He was the chairman of the NASD. He was the chairman of blah, blah, blah. The guy was chairman of 15 or 20 major institutions that were all about propriety and, and the, the honest integrity of money management. I mean, the guy was considered the most, one of the most respected men on Wall Street by a lot of people, not by everybody, but by a lot of people. When, when Harry Markle Polis, who was a certified fraud examiner, went to the SEC six times and said, Bernie Madoff is a fraud, Bernie Madoff is a fraud, and he brought in mathematical proof, he was ignored every time. Don't forget, Bernie Madoff was not caught. The SEC, the police, the FBI, no one caught Bernie Madoff. He turned himself in because the scam was collapsing. The reason that Harry Markle Polis was ignored, the Cassandra in that instance, there's a, lo- a number of reasons about Harry. One was his claim was outlandish. It's outlandish to think that, that this man, who's the chairman of the NASDAQ, could actually be running a massive Ponzi scheme. It's outlandish to think that there's a Ponzi scheme that big. So we get clouded when someone tells us a proposal of a, of a warning that just seems outlandish. That seems too crazy. Look, David, you and I and everyone listening, we got to part of the reason we got to be the level where we are is we don't jump at monsters under the bed anymore. We learn not to be afraid of that. So outlandishness is one. If someone comes with a warning that's outlandish, realize your inherent biases are going to be to ignore them. And you don't, you're, you're, you, you may be right, you may be wrong, but realize that you're being bias-driven away because it's outlandish. So the one category is the warning. RP, uh, let me, let me, let me stop you there because uh, it's great. So um, for those people who are focused on risk management, this is a, a theme that RP and I have um, sort of shared with a number of people. The importance of taking in the information and factoring it. You got it and assigning some possibility or level of probability to it, even if you don't accept it completely as face value, is hugely important. So the warnings that were being shared with the SEC were also playing out at the time with respect to Madoff uh, at Barron's. Barron's was writing rather extensively and posing the question. And there were a number of risk managers, investors, insurance companies, financial institutions who either didn't see it or read it and completely dismissed the possibility of it. Number you one. got it. As did the SEC. And, and, and the SEC, what, what is, was particularly ironic and, and um, knowing something directly about the Madoff situation is that uh, the SEC actually had a fairly recent audit of Madoff's uh, books and records and gave a, essentially a clean, not quite an audit, but an examination, gave a, uh, a clean sort of passing grade to it. So there's a, another level of irony because they actually were in there and looking at books and records and couldn't uncover certain things. Uh, the third yeah. thing here around uh, Markopoulos and, and, and some of the things and why people such as this can't be dismissed and you have to at least take in the information and you know maybe share it with others and sort of figure out a little benchmarking of what is the possibility probability how should we assign value to what is being said is there was a basic issue that he also brought up that some people missed which was if you looked at who the auditors were of this gigantic multi-billion dollar fund it basically was a one-person shop on either the second or third floor of a uh, walk-up in connecticut and that was an extraordinary uh, important tell that 
you know, even if you were dismissing Markopoulos, that was an issue to dig in and bear on. So the point is very, very important. Something may feel outlandish, walk and talk outlandish, uh, but nonetheless have to take in the information and assign a certain level of possibility or probability to it. You got it. So let, let me uh, give you a couple more quick examples of that. So what we found was in these warnings that were ignored, and we, we studied seven of them, and you mentioned them previously, sometimes the warning itself, the warning itself triggers our biases and we drive away. We just discussed outlandishness. There's other types of warnings we, we, we discard. We also learned that the decision maker, the person who's supposed to make the decision, there's attributes of the decision maker that sometimes lead to them getting it wrong. Those attributes are largely about good organizational theory, making sure you don't, you don't have a diffusion of responsibility. And I'll give you one example there. And that has to do with what we call agenda inertia, right? So, so David, when, um, when you started Rain, you had an agenda in mind. You're actually a great example of someone who's very flexible with how to make the business move. But a lot of people who take a position of power get there and they're pretty sure they know what to do. They're pretty sure they know how they're going to spend their time and their money as the CEO or the president of the United States. And when someone shows up and says, hey, boss, guess what? You're not going to be able to focus just on your war against Iraq, President Bush, and, and your pressure against Iraq and uh, nuclear missile program. You now have to worry about something called Al-Qaeda. That, that, is, that gets against the agenda they already have. So one thing we learned about the decision makers, amongst six other things, is when you push against their current agenda, it's hard for them to, to modify. The third category, of course, is the Cassandra herself. What can we tell about the Cassandra? Here's the most important point, I think, David, or second most important. These Cassandras were not the woman on Park Avenue who will read your palm for 15 bucks. This was not someone who had a gut feeling. This wasn't Nostradamus. These were proven technical experts. These were people who were data-driven. They were driven by data, not by ideology. They weren't in there telling you this was going to happen because it was something that they grew up believing. They were telling you that the data said so. And in fact, David, after interviewing these people, every single one of them said two things to us, the same sentence. One was, when I was done with my study and looked at all my data, I went to all my colleagues and said, gosh, this can't be right. Show me how I'm wrong. They really didn't even want to believe it, but the data spoke to them. And the second thing they all said was, um, tell me that I'm wrong. And the second thing was, when they were being ignored, they said to the decision makers, how can you ignore your own data? This isn't proprietary data you're ignoring. The seismological tables that I'm using off of Japan, said Okamura, about the Fukushima Daiichi earthquake that turned into a devastating tsunami. He said, this data is inarguable. We are late cycle to have a tsunami come and it's going to destroy that nuclear plant, introducing another Cassandra. So that's a number of things about the Cassandras. Then finally, we'll do it quickly. The fourth category where we think we can look to learn if the warning should be listened is about the critics themselves. So if you see a variety of critics going against the person giving the warning, and for example, they have professional or personal investment in the process, you can ignore them. Or if, or if a number of them are giving different criticisms, not the same criticisms, you can begin to discount them. So that's some of the things we found in the coefficient that we think, and again, it's just an initial look, we think can allow us to determine who we should listen to and who we can ignore. Okay, and so the, um, I want to unpack some of these insights because they're hugely important. Yeah, I'm happy to go deeper on all of them, but yeah. I, I don't want to waste your time. No, there's, no, there's, as you know, there's 24 it, of them. 
Absolutely no waste of time. And, and again, it's a great book. It's a great read. And uh, as I think you've expressed to me directly, uh, this was meant to spark expanded thinking. It was not supposed to be the end of a conversation. So let me well, um, share, share with you um, and our audience a couple of the dynamics that I know you and I have discussed. Let's call it the emperor's new clothes. People can see something, it's clear in front of them, they know it's the case, but no one else is responding. No one else is reacting. No one else seems to see the issue or the risk within, you know, sort of the relevant audience. The ability to raise your hand and press forward, that takes a specific and very particular kind of DNA, and to do it in a way that can be convincing and, and not to be dismissed as a, as a nut. And if you recall the, the children's tale about Emperor's New Clothes, it actually took a child to raise uh, his hand and say, but mom, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. So as you think about um, the Cassandras in the world, the need to sort of highlight what the issues are and the risks are, part of this process, RP, as we've discussed, is how do you make sure children, the, the, the voices of children can be heard the perhaps least sophisticated, but the people who are actually seeing things and telling the truth. Organizationally, how do you make sure from a bottom up these issues can be raised and appropriately uh, analyzed? Excellent point. Let me, let me uh, you know, you raise a great thought, David. So here's the thing, okay, of the seven or eight, we really kind of looked at about 10 Cassandras. Again, they were, they predicted the catastrophe. They were ignored. The catastrophe happened. Okay. Of those seven or eight Cassandras, the 10 that we looked at closely, a huge number of them, almost all, not all, almost all had what we call off putting personalities. So you said, you said how to make this prediction and not be seen as a nut, right? A lot of these guys are seen as nuts. So I'll give you an example. Jim Hansen, the man who discovered climate change, the man whose model in 1981 was exactly right about climate change, it's been perfect since 1981, was considered a nut. The man got arrested six times. He was a NASA scientist, a senior executive in the government, but he was nuts on this. All of his colleagues thought he was nuts. He chained himself to the White House fence. That's not a guy you're going to bring into and listen to seriously. And by the way, I love him. I've met him. I've talked to him. He's not the best communicator. That's why a guy like that. So you talk about the voice of the children, which is a great analogy. It took someone, a senator, a junior senator from Tennessee named Al Gore to marry up with Hanson to really get the word out in this documentary called An Inconvenient Truth. By the way, a great, a great phrase to describe a lot of these warnings. They're inconvenient truths. So a lot of these experts are off-putting. They seem like nuts. And, and part of what you're saying, David, is, yeah, it takes a special DNA to push, 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 and not give up when everyone's telling you you're crazy. So what the, the message to people who are paying attention to trying to find the right warning is, look, when that guy keeps showing up or that woman keeps showing up in your office and you think they're a little crazy, they might be a little crazy, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. So how do you let, so back to your question, how do you allow um, a capacity to listen? How do you ensure that there's an institutional or constant capacity to know that at least you're looking for the warnings? And, and we have a couple ideas. One is this, look, this book and a number of books lay out pretty clearly the human biases we have. And if anyone out there hasn't read about biases, just go to Wikipedia, type in biases, spend an hour on it, and you'll learn a lot about yourself that is worth knowing. 
the unfortunate punchline about biases, and again, biases meaning just short shortcuts that we take in mental processing that are wrong, right? Um, one that I heard the other day is a story. A, a large black man, who's a friend of mine, was jogging down the road, lovely guy, obviously, and a white woman was rolling her garbage can down the driveway about six in the morning as this guy was jogging by. She saw a large black man running down the road. She ran back into her house in fear. Her bias was that a large black man running down the road is going to hurt me. The reality was he's the CEO of a major organization. He lives two doors over, and he'd rather you know, help take care of her than hurt her. So her bias got the hold of her and ran her inside. Racial bias is an obvious one. There's lots of them. When you learn about your biases, the bad news is they're extremely, extremely hard to break. And I don't just mean racism. There's so many of them. It's really hard to break biases. But what's easy to do is to remember stories, right? So, David, I know, I, knowing you as well as I do, you tell stories that are management theory. You tell stories to motivate people. And if you want people to learn about Cassandra theory or other things, you've got to tell them the stories. So internally, we're encouraging organizations to, you don't have to read our book, but learn the stories of the prediction of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. Learn the stories of the Madoff collapse. Learn the stories of people being ignored, and that will help crack through your biases. Finally, so like anything else, we you need to read. We jump? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. Thanks. Let me do one more idea, and I think you'll like this, David. So we've been spending some time with uh, Donald Trump's National Security Council, and we've been describing to them, look, there used to be a position um, in the National Intelligence Council called the NIO for warning, National Intelligence Officer for warning. Charlie Allen had that job. Charlie Allen warned, warned of Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. Charlie Allen, Allen was ignored. He's one of the Cassanders in our book. That was a really important job, National Intelligence Officer for Warning. He got to look around the world and figure out the warnings people were missing. When they redid the National Intelligence Apparatus under the DCI, uh, under the, they got rid of the NIO for warning. They got rid of that position. So what we're suggesting to the Trump White House is, you know what? This is valuable to you. Create a small office of six people that sits in the White House so it has that White House authority, but branches across all of the government, branches across the private sector, convenes meetings, has conversations, and listens for warnings, and, and begins the process of understanding them. We think that's another way to institutionalize the method. So let me, uh, again, I want to unpack these points for the audience. Um, there, I, throughout your book, uh, I found it actually as much insightful about individuals and what they were seeing and how their warnings were not heeded. It was as much a thesis about what I'll refer to as sort of organizational behavior and organizational yes. structure and the need to reorganize. And you're, you're highlighting this, you know, with, you know, the story uh, about Alan. And what I would um, say as a takeaway for organizations and why it's important not only to hear the stories or the narratives, but history is extraordinarily important. You know, uh, if it doesn't repeat itself, it certainly rhymes, as, as Mark Twain said. And the need to have a very wide bandwidth for the different personalities that often surface these issues is critical. For those of you who either read The Big Short or saw, saw the movie, you'll see that the people who um, sort of triumphed almost as heroes and certainly profited greatly from the financial collapse were very, very different, diverse, and I'll, I'll use the word somewhat awkward personalities 
who were seeing things that other people weren't seeing. And when their warnings sort, sort of went, right? yeah, yeah, went ignored, they, they basically figured out a way to take financial advantage of this. And so it is important organizationally, whether you're running a business or a government agency or a small advisory group, et cetera, or even your family, um, to be able to take in a, a rich diversity of voices, people that you might not be comfortable having dinner with, but nonetheless need to be understood, number one. Number two, people are very impatient with the, I'll call it the time gap between when a warning is given or people are worried and when events actually happen. And when it doesn't happen right away or in a short period of time, people tend to dismiss those warnings and not continue to keep them in corporate. So I'll give you an expression that you know, was shared with me uh, when I was at Goldman Sachs. Um, someone very senior uh, said to me in a very sort of joking way, David, you're, you, you seem to be um, sort of uncannily correct about things, but sometimes it takes years before those events happen and a lot of money can be made between <clears throat> the time you give the warning and the events. What I have found about risk management, I don't care whether it's national security or it's financial risk or it's investment risk, um, that people sort of think, okay, I can understand this. It kind of makes sense to me. And, uh, but until the point of, we'll call it uh, the point of action, I can still operate within my normal zones. And of course, things always happen, you know, at the worst times and in very surprising ways. So how you begin to sort of think about risk management, certainly on a national security level, but no less an organizational level, when number one, a lot of people are ignoring the risk, the people who are offering these insights are, you know, a bit, I'll, I'll, I'll call it, uh, their personalities can be a bit challenging. And three, because timing around these events is so difficult that we can become complacent. How do you begin to think about responding to those, I'll call it organizational and uh, individual dynamics? Great point, David. So, um, you know, we call it the, 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 the gap from flash to bang, right? So someone comes out and says, and I, let's go back to Fukushima. There will be an earthquake. It will cause a tsunami. The tsunami is going to be 20 meters high. The wall around your nuclear reactor is 15 meters high. You're going to have five meters of water dumping on your reactor. It's going to destroy your power backup. You're going to have a meltdown. Obayashi, Okamura, excuse me, said this to them over and over and over. He was a data-driven expert. He was a proven technical expert. He was ignored. And the reason was he couldn't say it's going to happen on September, October, November. He couldn't say what decade it was going to happen. Obviously, he was right. By the way, he was right within 30 years. He seen him a 30-year window, and he was correct. So this, this understanding understand the diversity of voices, your first point is absolutely critical. If you go back to 08, you were talking about some of the unusual people who profited from the, from the uh, event. Um, I'll tell you, the, the movie The Big Short does one horrendous historical error. One is, in that it doesn't talk about a woman who really was the, one of the brains Correct. of understanding 08 was going to collapse, which is Meredith Whitney. Correct. And we talk about yep. Meredith in our book. And it's, by the way, an ex amazing example of sexism in Hollywood that she didn't get in that movie because her story is amazing. So Meredith Whitney was a relatively young analyst at Oppenheimer, sort of a not a first-tier firm. 
And she came out with a report that said the largest company in the world, Citigroup, is not going to be able to pay its dividend. And, um, and she had the data behind her and the markets collapsed. She then said that about Lehman and Bear. Every time she was right, every time she was ridiculed, she got death threats. Uh, she still, people still are angry at her for predicting this as if she caused it. Um, so, but being a, a, a sort of a young woman and very presentable, it was easy for people to dismiss her and they certainly paid for it if they did. So how to change your organization so that you listen to the diversity of voices and, and also to understand that when you're getting a warning, the guy can't promise it's going to be an hour, a day or a month. Sometimes they can, but often they can't. And so what you have to do then, David, is, and you know this better than I do, you have to begin hedging strategies. So if one thing we talk about is um, now is not the time and satisficing. So back to your, I really appreciate your point about this book being a lot about organizational theory. In fact, I was surprised to see on Amazon, uh, we were the number one best-selling book in decision-making theory for a month. Uh, and we didn't write this thinking that's where it would be sold, but it, amongst other categories, that's what people are buying it for. The, the ability for an organization to make those decisions um, is, is highly relevant on the voices they're listening to and how they're arranged. And one thing that we see a lot of is this phrase from the 70s, organizational theory called satisficing. I'll do just enough to get you off my back, but not enough to solve the problem. And I bet you saw that all the time, David, and, and we see that with the clients and so do you. I'll do just enough to get you off my back, but I'm not going to have the full solution here. So Katrina is this great example of that, um, where a professor of climate science at LSU, Louisiana State University, highly specific, he's like, Levy 47, Levy 52, and Levy 3 are going to break. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Not only was he ignored, he was fired. Um, and, but instead, you know, they did a little bit, right? They built a couple of things here, a couple of things there. They satisfied New Orleans. They said, we'll be all right, and it wasn't right. So you, you have to enter into a very eyes wide open hedging strategy. You know, what's really going to happen? Um, Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan, and I am a real critic of that book. I think that book's wrong in a lot of ways. One thing he gets right is this idea that um, a bell curve, is, people claim a bell curve is, you know, I, I don't have to worry about things that are outside the bell curve in normal distribution. You couldn't be more wrong. It's things outside the bell curve that really drive history. So when you're satisficing, when you're not doing enough, if you aren't actually hedging for the, 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 the things outside the bell curve, you're going to pay a high price. Ultimately, you're going to have to spend money on things that you're not sure are going to happen. And if you overspend on some defense and not get whacked, that's fine. Let me, let me end with a number. The Fukushima nuclear disaster, and I just mean the outcome from the nuclear aspect of that massive tsunami, the Daiichi nuclear plant being hit, cost at least $100 billion and will probably make about 10,000 people ill from long-term cancers. $100 billion, 10,000 people will die early because they didn't build a wall five meters higher, okay? It would have cost maximum $50 million to support and protect that nuclear reactor. The return on that $50 million is what, 1,000 to 1, 2,001. I mean, extraordinary return. So sometimes you have to spend an extra 50 million bucks to prevent $100 billion worth of damage and 10,000 people dying, uh, long-term death. So, you know, you have to make those decisions. So um, another great insight that you're making, and uh, let me share with you, and I know um, when you're talking to clients, it is not just the issue of raising 
concern about a particular risk. And one of the reasons that I think sometimes um, people either turn a deaf ear or there's somewhat of willful blindness or nothing's happening today, I'll worry about it as I start to see some more clarity around this, is that very often as these predictions are made or these insights are provided, what is not a companion partner in this is what do I do about it? So decision makers, whether they're at the top of the of corporations or at various agencies, very often will get these warnings and it, it will, I'll say understandably, tie them into a state of uh, inaction, complacency, or I'll, I'll deal with it later on. It's just not a high priority issue. And part of the reason is because effective hedging and resiliency strategies are often not accompanying these predictions. And it's not to say that the people who see certain things, that's their job, is also to say, okay, here's what you can do about it. But as we think about your book and, and the insights that are being provided, as an organizational matter, again, whether in the public sector or private sector, for those people whose job it is to look at these issues and try to figure out, you know, what is the data behind it? What is the likelihood, probability? Should I escalate? Should I not escalate? The ability to wrap these issues around actionable solutions for hedging and resiliency and cost-benefit analysis is absolutely critical, at least in my experience and I know in yours. So if, if one, of the, one of the telling lessons I've always found about why certain things are not heard or listened to is that very often they don't come with what are the appropriate steps that we can take now, what will they cost what hedging protections does this give us? What resiliency protections? And if we find this issue is either greater than what we're anticipating or less, how we can either increase or basically unravel the steps that we're taking today. And I'd like you to maybe comment on, on, on that point as well, RP. Um, so, David, you're making an extraordinarily good point. And I, I'm quite sure when someone comes to work for you, comes to work for Rain, at some point you teach them, hey, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. And that's managing up theory 101 and take it broader and look at this kind of the stuff we're talking about. Don't go to decision maker and say, you've got cancer and you can't fulfill your agenda anymore and you've got to, have to spend a ton of money on this. Go to them with a solution, part one. Part two, very quick story. I remember when I was in the NSC, there was a big debate going on between DOD and the State Department about selling a weapon uh, to uh, an ally of ours. It was an, an anti-aircraft weapon. And in that debate, we got per paralyzed by analysis, right? Paralysis by analysis. 100-page memos being generated by the interagency to try to make this solution, figure out what to do. And the two sides were, were not able to agree with each other. One said, you can sell the weapon. One said, don't sell the weapon. When it got to our office, uh, Dick Clark looked at that and he, he wrote a one sentence memo. He said, if you sell this weapon, you will potentially kill the president of the United States, period. He put that note on top of hundreds of pages of analysis, sent it forward. Guess what decision was made? He made it very simple by telling a story, by telling the worst case scenario and making it clear. Um, the reason he was saying that was that this weapon could destroy Air Force One and Air Force One, you know, obviously we don't want that to happen. So come with solutions, not problems, have actionable strategies for the solution. Tell your, tell your case with stories uh, to crack the paralysis by analysis. 
And, um, and, and also, you know, look, if you are a Warner and you're out there and you know you have an off-putting personality, don't, don't create complexity and mismatch. Don't come in with too much technical theory for a bunch of liberal arts majors. Come in, speak a language they can understand. And again, going through the people who made these warnings, the, the, the engineers from Morton Thiokol, who said the Challenger would explode, the Space Shuttle Challenger would explode because the O-rings would degrade, look back on that and say, we talked too technically. We talked about you know, material science. We didn't talk about the actual impact in a way people could understand. So it's a communications challenge as well. Great points. And I want to touch upon one more theme, and then I have a closing uh, question for you. Um, what's also uh, comes through, at least to me, loud and clear in the book, but also from our experiences, is the question of failure and the fear of being wrong mm-hmm. and how that inhibits people uh, from speaking out. I'll go back to my grandfather from, you know, not wanting to tell the doctor everything for fear that it's irrelevant or, you know, doesn't want to listen. And what's very interesting, and we've seen this time and time again, particularly uh, in Washington and also in in some companies, the fear of being wrong, the fear of failure. Uh, The West Coast and many technology companies actually celebrate that issue. They want people to come up with ideas. They celebrate and have parties around ideas that, you know, they tried to execute against and they blew up spectacularly. And the notion here is that if you don't embrace failure as part of the process. If you don't embrace being wrong as part of, we'll call it humanity, the best ideas will never surface. And you'll never acquire the lessons you need to be smarter and better and come up with a a better idea in the future. And Washington has a very different uh, approach. And I'll argue that, you know, our media loves, you know, the blame game and uh, the fact that people, you know, are wrong and they sort of bring them out into the public square. And in Washington, um, failure is not celebrated. It's, um, they generally hold hearings around it. And I have seen time and again, great, great people who have 30 years or more of distinguished service of being right, being taken down and being punished or being wrong in a single instance, or miscalibrating. And part of what I think is necessary, and I know you you touched upon it, we've we've shared some thoughts, uh, around surfacing the, we'll call it the predictive analysis that we need to more effectively manage risk, to encourage people to come forward, to encourage exploration, to encourage challenging of assumptions, to encourage what I'll refer to as truth-telling is the notion that if people are wrong, they don't get punished. They get punished if they're wrong because they have hidden agendas or they're not being intellectually honest. But the intellectually honest effort, regardless of result, has to be applauded and celebrated as a matter of culture, as a matter of organizational behavior. And with all the insights that you're providing about the people who are out there and what they can provide. That only works if they feel they can operate or find a niche in an organization or an outlet or going to the SEC or whatever, and that they will be heard. And if they're wrong, they don't get punished. 
Yes, uh, and to incentivize the tribe. So one, right. one, when, I, when I have the pleasure to meet uh, generals and admirals, and I've met an innumerable number in my career, the ones that I enjoy the most, like I would in any institution, are the ones that are not consensus thinkers. And I find there are less and less of them in the U.S. military uh, than, than I would expect. And there's a reason for that. And you just you hit it right on the head, David. For example, you're talking about government. Well, the U.S. military, of course, being the largest line item. If you make a mistake as a general nowadays, your, your career is basically over. Um, and literally, people are losing their whole career because they forgot to itemize a certain plane ride for their, their kids from one place to the other. I mean, literally, you know, uh, paper keeping errors. You, you have to be flawless. So if you have an organization where everyone has to be flawless on everything, guess what you lead to? People who don't take risk. You lead to um, a, a celebration of consensus thinkers, and that is not the way to do it. And I would, I would let me get a little political. I think Afghanistan is a great example of consensus thinking just gone wrong, right? So our military, now during World War II, that wasn't the case. In World War II, if a general screwed up, he wasn't fired and publicly shamed. Sometimes he was. Generally, he was moved to another position and another position because we knew they would learn from this. We knew they could be better leaders next time. Maybe they got their hands slapped, but their career wasn't over. If you blow it in any way as a general nowadays, your career is over. You are publicly shamed. You just nailed it, David. You're right. So that organization, amongst others, has become a place that worships consensus thinking, rewards consensus thinking, and does not have incentive for external thinking, for unusual thinking. So the SEC, after the Madoff probe, was just, you know, they were beat left, right, and center, and they should have been because they blew it. They were warned over and over. They blew it. They investigated him. They blew it. They now have a program where you can go in and report frauds, and you can get paid a ton of money, a huge percentage of the recovery, if the fraud you reported is the one that's right. So they've actually created incentives for people to come in from the cold and share information. So, but here's the other point to it from an institution. You have to incentivize people to take risks, and you as a decision maker have to accept that you're going to now start taking hedges you may not need. You're going to spend money preventing disasters that may not come. And here's the hardest part about it. You may, expend, you may spend money preventing for, to prevent disasters, and you'll never know if you were right or wrong, because maybe you did prevent it, maybe it didn't prevent it. You're not going to be able to tell. So it, 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 it introduces a large amount of, of vagueness into the decision-making process, and it's, it's hard for people to do it. And David, you're right. If you're not going to allow risks, you're not going to incentivize risks, then you're not going to get this right. Now, let me add one more thought. The way it should be done, and, and when it works well in government, this is the way I like to see it, is that if you had the right intent with your decision and you have followed a complete non-biased process, with your decision, you weren't driven by ideology, you were driven by data, then often in US government, you don't get as punished. You still do in the military, but in other places you don't. If you followed a process that you can document to make your decision, and it was, an ex it was, an, it was a comprehensive and exhaustive process that was not bias driven, then you should not get your hand slapped when you get it wrong. And this book, The Cassandra Coefficient is one beginning of a process to make some decisions. I'm big on process. I'm big on frameworks. Now, there's always the warning, you know, a complete matrix. You've heard this expression, a complete matrix conveys no information. Don't be process bound. Be aware of other questions, but have a process you're following so you're exhaustive in your thinking because, you know, we're lazy. We don't think we are. We cut corners. We forget things. 
That's why it's good to go back to the processes laid down by smart people and make sure your your MISI, mutually exclusive and comprehensively comprehensively exhaustive in your study. So if you're not biased Latin and if you're following a process, that risk should be rewarded. If you are biased Latin and you didn't follow a process, that risk should be punished. Uh, RP, last thought, 30 seconds. What are you worried about? What's keeping you up? Boy, I'll tell you, when, when Dick and I tried to figure out how to do the second half of the book, and in the second half of the book, we describe, um, we describe people who are right now screaming and yelling and making warnings and being ignored. Now, we don't know if they're right or they're wrong, but we look at a lot of people who are out there right now saying, boy, you better listen to me because something big is coming down the tracks. So those were really fun chapters to read. Those were fascinating people to meet. We met all those potential Cassandras. And there's seven of them in the book. We talk about the rise of artificial intelligence, the rise of pandemic disease, et cetera. That's some fascinating stuff that I had just no idea was out there. And then when you talk to these guys, it's great. Um, one of them, when Dick and I had to you know, figure out who was going to write what chapter, I just didn't want to write it because I thought it was so silly. And now that I've written it, it literally keeps me up at night, is about the rise of super intelligence. Um, now, look, I'm no computer scientist, uh, I, but I'll tell you what, if Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking tell me I need to worry about something and that I need to worry about it at a species level risk, like it's a big, big deal risk, I'm going to listen. And what those three guys are saying and many other major intellectuals is, is basically we might be creating our final invention. We might be building the thing that is the end of humanity. Now, remember, there's a lot of mites here and could be's and we're not sure's, but this concept, and I'll do it really quickly, although it's a big, hairy concept, is we're creating computers that are going to program and build themselves called recursive, recursive programming or machine learning. As those machines learn, as they teach themselves more and more, we will, no one, no one disagrees with this, eventually have a computer that is, quote, unquote, smarter than a human. So then you get to this question of, really, will we ever have a computer smarter than a human? The answer is yes, but only for a very short period of time, because that computer then gets smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter, and very soon, matter of days or weeks or months, it is markedly smarter than humanity, 10 times, 100 times, however you measure these things. So we are now on the flight path of creating a machine that will be demonstrably, markedly smarter than we are. There's a lot of great that's going to come from that. We will literally end aging. We'll end hunger. We'll end the energy problem. It's a massive what will come from that, and it's really fun to think about the questions these things will answer. But what we don't know is when we create something that powerful, how will we coexist with it? And there's different sides to this. Ray Kurzweil is a noted futurist, says, don't worry. What will happen is we'll merge with it. Humanity will be different than it is now, but it'll be better, will be improved, will be cybernetic. Others, the three I mentioned before, Musk, Gates, and Hawking, say it could be the end of humanity. Elon Musk calls it summoning the demon. So when I started writing this chapter, I'd spend time with my 11-year-old and 8-year-old son, and we'd talk about it, and I'd show him graphs, theory, and, um, and I got them so scared, they would go to school and talk about it. And I had moms calling me up and saying, what are your kids telling my kids? It is fascinating amazing to think about and it scares the pants off of me and part of why it scares me is there is no way this world is going to come together to harness this production because uh it's just too promising so china's going to build it google's going to build it everyone's going to race to build super intelligence and there's no way we're going to have a treaty that tries to make it safe because it's just it's too good um i would just refer the listeners to the fermi theory about about how civilizations destroy themselves this could be part of that 
Uh, and um, yeah, that's one that really keeps me up at night, but they're all fascinating. Um, if you want to do one more, I can, but if we're out of time, we'll stop. All right. I, we're, first of all, this has been a great, great conversation. I want to thank you. And I want to thank you and Richard for uh, the public service of writing this book. And I mean that um, in all its elements and uh, the conversation to um, be continued. Uh, I'd like to end on an optimistic note, uh, which is, uh, I've increasingly come to the conclusion that our problems are not intractable. What's been intractable have been our approaches to solving those problems. Uh, we've uh, addressed them in the same way as always. And your book is a perfect example about how to break down those silos and to think about insights and solutions that can manage very, very significant risks, not the least of which is your articulating here around AI. And I'll end with a slight editorial note which is unfortunately the pace of innovation uh, far, far exceeds the thinking about the costs, the long-term costs. And so that's something uh, perhaps we can continue in uh, another podcast, RP. But thank you again, thank truly, you. truly, for the conversation and for the public service that um, you've undertaken in writing this book. Uh, that's very gracious of you. I really enjoyed it. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Bye-bye.